those might connect to tell you stuff about, you know, what we're trying to do today is very challenging and takes some creativity. It also takes a lot of openness. Learning efforts are so focused on what we deem relevant to this moment without knowing what the fit's going to be relevant in the future. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandsford of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today we'll be talking with Brent Sterling, adjunct professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and author of Other People's Wars, the U.S. Military and the Challenge of Learning from Foreign Conflicts. Brent will be talking to us today about just that topic as well as addressing specific case studies and giving advice on modernization priorities. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for coming on, Brent. Thanks, Luke. It's uh, I'm delighted to be here and I uh, appreciate the work y'all are doing. And it's especially nice as someone who's a historian to try to weigh in on uh, how the past is helpful for the future. Absolutely. And, and we really want to learn about the future of war from history. You know, Brent, you have an interesting background as a defense analyst. Um, you've had positions at the CIA, a number of consulting firms, but you've also been a professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service uh, at Matt Size, longtime partner, Georgetown University. So how did you get here? Have you always been interested in defense and national security? Well, I grew up just a couple of blocks away from Fort Sam Houston, um, but I, I spent a lot of time there as a kid. Mostly, though, playing golf with my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, and then bingo with my grandmother. So that didn't really win me to it. But I've always been interested in defense and foreign policy stuff. Um, and I made the big decision at the end of college not to go to law school, which was my initial plan, and joined the government. By May of uh, 1990, I was at the CIA as a military analyst in the Persian Gulf region. My first briefing in the Pentagon was on Kuwait a month before uh, the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And it was, a, of course, a rite of passage as a young person where a bunch of uh, colonels snarled at me and said I was what I was doing was irrelevant. Uh, that all changed a month later, of course, with the invasion. And next year was a whirlwind, uh, great educational experience. But by the mid-90s, I wanted to get a PhD. Georgetown and the CIA, neither one of them let me do it simultaneously with working. So I went to Georgetown. And, you know, you as I know you have a lot of guests on who've talked about their career paths. You have to be your own advocate, but it also helps my dissertation advisor coerced me into teaching, essentially. I had planned just to go back into government once I got my doctorate. And instead, I found that I really like teaching. It's a very rewarding experience. And so I've done that. Next year will be the 25th year I've taught. Um, and then, but ultimately, when I got my PhD, I did go back to consulting firms, worked a lot for various parts of DOD, eventually got tired of managing people and trying to get business. So now I just do what I want. I teach and I write books. That's how we ended up here today. Well, fantastic. And that's actually a great segue. So you just came out uh, with your new book in March of this year, Other People's Wars, the U.S. Military and the Challenge of Learning from Foreign Conflicts. And I honestly couldn't put it down. So can you tell our audience a bit more about the book and what inspired you to write it? Um, Sure. All my work has always been on decision-making. How do you make the best decisions? How can we improve that process? And I've done it in different aspects. Uh, One, during wartime decision-making, I've written a book on uh, how decisions to build defense barriers or not. And after that last book, I was contemplating what to do 
I travel a lot. I was actually in Sevastopol, Crimea, when this book came to me, which is a, a very unorthodox experience. So I was sitting on the hill. There's a high bluff that overlooks where the Charge of the Light Brigade took place. I was having lunch there uh, with my, my escort. And uh, I was contemplating writing a book on the U.S. Civil War at the time. And I just, it dawned on me, I was thinking how much impact the Crimean War had had on the U.S. Civil War. And so I started investigating that. And I knew that, uh, I knew that McClellan had been there. And, uh, and so I started, discovered that although there was individual studies of, of things like the Delphi Commission, which was the group that went to the Crimea, uh, there was no book that had looked across time at how the efforts to learn and what were the challenges and were those constant, were there recurring pitfalls and, and lessons to be learned from the process. And so I endeavored to write that book. And essentially that's how we ended up here 10 years later. In terms of what the book's about, ultimately I, I decided every 30 or 40 years, the army, the US military fought a war. And five, 10 years before that, there was a little war somewhere in the world that was very important. And so the juxtaposition of that and allowed me a nice spacing to investigate the Crimean War, followed by the U.S. Civil War, the Russo-Japanese War by World War I, Spanish Civil War right before World War II. And then we ultimately end up with the Yom Kippur War. There's no war for 18 years for the United States, but the reforms the Army and Air Force undertook in the 70s were so fundamental and they were influenced by them. That case had to be included. Uh, the two things I, the one thing I excluded was any counterinsurgency cases. And I know your audience has people who are involved in both. Algeria and Malay had been studied so much the last 20 years by people in the U.S. military that I ultimately decided it wasn't worthwhile for me to include those. Uh, so I focused on these other cases. The other thing I'll say, and, and I know you're, this is an Army instituted endeavor, and many of your listeners are in the Army. Uh, the Army, by far, is the best learners of any of the services and these things. But I wanted to uh, consider the other services from their experiences. So the first two cases, I looked at the Navy experience, and then the last two, I looked at the uh, Air Force experience, and even though in, during the 30s, the Air Corps is a part of the Army, they didn't act like it. So they were really acting independently. So it, it allowed me to have eight cases, essentially, from the experience. In terms of what I discovered, every time I talk to anybody about this book, it's always, well, we don't learn anything, right? And that's a lesson. And uh, that's, that's an oversimplification. There's certainly a lot of challenges, which I'll talk about. But it's true that we actually have benefited somewhat significantly. If your expectation is that we discover some weapon no one had ever seen before from that foreign war, that's, an, that's a ridiculous standard and one that's not very useful. Uh, I, I ultimately grouped lessons learned or, or benefits into three categories. One, instructional lessons, which in terms of things, how, how do you do certain things? What's the benefit from that? For example, uh, during the Crimean War, the 12-pound Napoleon-filled artillery piece was uh, discovered and well, ultimately, that became the primary gun for both the North and South in the Civil War. We brought that back. And, and Alfred Mordecai, one of the guys, the best ordnance officer in the U.S. military at the time, was on the commission. He brought that back and really shepherded it through the process of becoming part of the U.S. Army. You also have instrumental lessons, which in terms of things we already know we want to do, at least segments of the service or the service, and there can't because of obstacles within the military or within the civilian ranks or the Congress, and so it provides evidence which really helps them. Now, a lot of people don't think this is a lesson learned, but in terms of my perspective, it was lots of helpful information that comes out of these experiences. And then finally, inspirational lessons, which are the revealing of problems that we didn't anticipate or we didn't fully understand. And so they generated efforts to try to solve the problem or else we understood the problem, but they provided some creative thinking about how we might address the problem. And I have examples of both uh, in, in my work. But if you can group lessons in those three categories, you cover a lot of space. Nonetheless, 
there's kind of recurring problems in terms of learning from this. Uh, it's very difficult to learn from our own experiences. It's even more difficult to learn from other people's experiences. Um, and, and I came up with a list of, of pitfalls that present a significant challenge uh, for how to do this. Um, but just in terms of very briefly, one of the problems with learning or one of the real challenges of understanding learning is it's not a blank slate. We just don't go to a foreign war and discover something and then pull it back. We're coming with as institutions and people with pre-existing beliefs. And those beliefs are how we, you know, cover the, engage in the inspection, unfortunately. Um, you know, it'd be perfect for you if you could, we could send a robot, essentially, who wouldn't have any biases, but that's not the way, that's not reality. So we might, we might do that in the next five years. Yeah, that, that'll be, a, yeah, I'd love to see that, you know, drop a little drone right in there just as, as a record <laughs> in the middle of the next war. Um, but, you know, human beings uh, don't really operate that way. Secondly, there's real challenges just to learning what goes on in a foreign war. And I will elaborate on this is more, but but it's not a, you know, an open inviting experience as opposed to your own battles. And so what we learn, how we learn uh, becomes an obstacle often. And we're, we're drawn to certain shiny obstacles. You know, certain battles really appeal to our senses. Um, they, certain battles get lots of coverage. Other battles that are very important get ignored um, just because there's no reporters there. Nobody, you know, or they don't have a big impact on the war's outcome, but they may have been very revealing about the nature of warfare itself. Third, there's an effort often to force the application of certain lessons that appeal to some people. In the Crimean War, there was a big battle in the U.S. Army and the government in the 1850s about whether or not masonry fortifications remained relevant. Um, were modern artillery going to obliterate them or not? The lesson from the Crimean War, at least the lesson at the senior ranks, was that did the masonry fortifications survive because the rifle, the artillery gun that was used, the Lancaster gun, it was highly touted, proved very ineffectual. Younger engineers, though, in the U.S. Army looked at the war and, and they came back very much. It was the earthen fortifications that had been jury-rigged on the other side of the Sebastopol, which really showed you the way of the future. But nonetheless, the senior officers were able to force through their view of the masonry fortifications remain. And that worked right up until April of 62, when the Parrot guns obliterated Fort Pulaski uh, down in Georgia. Oppositely, certain components of the services and certain services have taken it upon themselves to reject learning because they viewed it as a threat to what they were trying to do. And I'll elaborate this one less because I think this is one of the most important parts of, of the process is, is how do you learn when the, what potentially is at play might have some jeopardy to what you're trying to do, or what you want to do as an institution? How do you make it better? And but there's a tendency just to blatantly reject it, declaring the war entirely irrelevant. Um, and that, that's proven to really in this, the Air Corps and the Spanish Civil War, the Cavalry and the Spanish Civil War, and the Russo-Japanese War are good examples of, of that. A couple of last ones. When some of the lessons are completely accurate, but they're not going to be relevant for long. They quickly become obsolete. So how do you deal with problems, lessons that are accurate and you want to apply, but in the future, how do you uh, capture some? We, we suffered some violent uh, mistakes because we applied lessons, again, the masonry fortifications one, where technology rapidly changed. Even though the, the technology failed during the war, it, it, it was rapidly repaired, in part because of lessons learned from the war itself. Finally, one of the challenges to applying lessons is some of the lessons are contradictory. So we can learn things. The Yom Kippur War was a war of incredible intensity and devastation. Shocking for the U.S. Army, the fact that the number of tanks that were destroyed in the 18 days of the Yom Kippur War were more than all the tanks we had with the 7th Army in Europe. And so that really scared uh, people in the U.S. Army and, and the uh, armor. It just, so we shifted. There was a lot of pressure to put more people into combat is away from logistics and, and other for, supporting elements. At the same time, the, the amount of fuel and ammunition used in the war was so incredible the head of Army Material Command said, whoa, wait a second, what are you doing? We need lots more people to do logistics. 
how do you balance those two challenges is, a, is an interesting question. We ultimately created 48 more battalions by shifting people to combat roles, but we did something in terms of diminishing our, our logistics uh, support for them. And so those are the main kind of pitfalls that recur time and time again. And even though the cases have enormous diversity, some of them uh, were situations where the US Army, US Navy, Air Force were very confident in their ability to meet the threat. Others, they, they felt very vulnerable with high threat perceptions. Sometimes we had um, a lack of, lack of resources to respond. So other times we had plentiful resources. Um, so it's really, how do you deal with, you know, regardless of the context for those decisions, these kind of pitfalls recurred. I want to delve a little deeper into your analysis of these use cases. Um, how did you balance looking at historical conflicts, but not using perfect hindsight and judgment about what was learned or not learned? Because sometimes it's easy to look back on something and say, Knowing what we know now, we should have done this. But back then, we didn't know what we know now. So how did you balance that? Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of the challenge of doing historical work. And, and as well as the robot who's going to gather information from the war, I, need, you know, I could benefit from being a robot myself sometimes, turning off my knowledge of the present, um, which obviously I can't do. Uh, so ultimately, the simple answer to this is that you got to do as much contextual research as possible. You really need to weigh into the primary documents, try to read uh, what these guys write, what they think, to get a sense of what they think, and, and what are the challenges facing them. And so I, it, it took me a long time to, you know, go back. I was in Sevastopol almost 10 years ago. Uh, so I spent enormous amounts of time. And the book itself is much shorter than the original version, as, as most authors who aren't Tom Clancy discover is, you know, when you try to get the press to, to publish your work, they, uh, they come back and say, well, we'll publish this many words. And, and you say, oh, my God, that's way too few. Um, but uh, so I, I had a lot of contextual uh, efforts getting there. I also try to be a fair in evaluating, you know, certain things you can you can't expect people to get. Um, and you know, in the Crimean War, we were introducing the rifled musket in the U.S. at the time, U.S. Army. Uh, there was great hope that the Crimean War would tell us about how you use the rifled musket. And in fact, most of the soldiers in the Crimean War didn't use the rifled musket. So there's actually a misunderstanding that sometimes that we didn't learn, but. Uh, Mordecai, who was in charge again of all ordinance matters, uh, you know, was very explicit that, you know, how can we judge this? We don't, we, they're not using it. So, you know, all the special forces uh, used, essentially used them on both sides. Um, and there were lessons to be learned from those uses, um, but there wasn't an overall sense you could understand tactics because that, there was no case. The other thing is certain things you just don't have access to. You know, late in the Spanish Civil War, the Germans, the Condor Legion starts embracing the Finger Four aerial formations, which was a great innovation. But we have nobody on the ground. So I try not to be judgmental of those things when I can't expect them. What I am very critical of is we can judge is when, when institutions willfully try to not learn. And in the case of, you know, the, the, the U.S. cavalry after the Russo-Japanese War, it, it's kind of surprising. Most people, if you'd ask them what was the most subject written about after the Russo-Japanese War in, in U.S. military journals, you would think it would be artillery, which was the most important element, or other aspects in the nature of the combat, which was incredible in scale and intensity. It was actually cavalry, and and there was almost no impactful cavalry activity in the, in the Russo-Japanese War, other than the Japanese using them for dismounted infantry. The real reason was that all these cavalry officers were trying to justify why the Russo-Japanese War wasn't significant, and they wrote endlessly about it. Um, it's it's there's kind of a, a an interesting psychological case. The cavalry is even starting to talk about things like using you know cavalry forces for shock tactics on the battlefield, things that the U.S. never did with cavalry at this time because they're really getting concerned about their their future. Um, you know, that or, or, the, or the, uh, the Air Corps in the Spanish Civil War, which very much went to great lengths to 
fast the Spanish Civil War is a relevant subject of study. And I'll elaborate on this a little bit more on some of the later questions. But it was a case where Hap Arnold and others actually plotted against learning. And then later on, though, in their memoirs, they talk about his memoirs. He talks about, well, we didn't really know what happened in Spain, which is patently untrue. They did know. They just chose not to pay attention to it. And then later on, claiming that they didn't know is, is really, you know, it's easy to condemn that. When I try to judge it, I tr the only answer is really to get inside their heads as much as possible. The other last thing I'll say about this is that lots of times resources are a big constraint or issue. Some of the lessons just aren't applicable because the resources required for them were so overwhelming, uh, both financially and so sometimes culturally that, that it, it's understandable why we didn't pursue them. I, I think those are fantastic points. And as Matt said, you know, we can't judge it uh, from from 2020 perfect hindsight. Um, but I think the context around that is really important. Um, you know, we, you've talked about some of them already used case studies for the Crimean War, the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the Spanish Civil War and the Yom Kippur War. Uh, did any of those when you were researching them and writing about them, did any of them surprise you in regarding what was noticed, what was ignored, what was discounted? A couple of ways to look at this, both positive and negative. Again, my expectation, knowing a little bit about the military, working with the militaries, was that, that they would actively try to manipulate things to, to benefit their perceived uh, interest and, per, and, and ways to do things. But, you know, there was a couple of surprises. One thing that I found disappointing particularly was uh, there's kind of a two-step process to learning from foreign wars. You learn from the actual experience of, of the combat, but you also need to learn from what others are learning from the experience. And learning from the learners is a big takeaway for my book. And, and people who are involved in these efforts talk about this all the time. Well, you know, the Germans, you know, Peyton March was uh, one of the uh, observers of the Russo-Japanese War, who ultimately went on to be chief of staff in the World War I. Uh, he became best friends or very close friends with Max Hoffman, the important German officer from World War I. And, and they shared a lot of information. Um, there's a lot of effort to understand what others do, but at the same time, we tended to neglect it. And that was particularly egregious in the Yom Kippur War, which is disappointing because the Army is, by that point, really a learning institution. I mean, the home, the Y'all Come Out of Tradoc was created just before the Yom Kippur War. It was almost a perfect present for the institution uh, to, to organize around and, and drove a lot of what they did with uh, General Depew and, and, and Starry and others. Um, but they failed to appreciate how much the Russians were taking away from the Yom Kippur War. And the Russians were, of course, involved on the Arab side heavily. And so they studied it intensely. And the Russians changed. The U.S. Army went ahead and they created active defense doctrine. They really went on the old way the Russians were going to fight with very concentrated armor thrust. And the Russians were moving away with that simultaneously. And so that's one of the surprises for me that we weren't, in, in multiple of the cases, especially the later cases, we weren't particularly good about learning from the learners and, and adjusting. On the positive side, I was surprised by, and especially in the recent Japanese war, how open we were to, to correcting when things were clearly surprising that changed the way we needed to do things or think about things. And I'll give you two examples, one very narrow, one big. At the beginning of the 20th century, the army was contemplating whether or not the bayonet had any future. You had increasing accuracy from firearms. We were introducing the new rifle in 1903. The question was what kind of bayonet, if to have a bayonet with it, do we drop bayonet from even tactic training and with the new uh, infantry drill regulations? The Russo-Japanese War was very surprising because the increased lethality of the firearms prompted, instead of uh, the bayonet being irrelevant, it prompted lots of night fighting. And we never really fought at night. So this is one of the things I think now we have lots of simulations. Sometimes we do, we do war games all the time in simulations. But we just didn't contemplate that it was actually the increased lethality as opposed to making the bayonet less relevant and made it more relevant. Because of that nighttime fighting, you had to be very careful about where you were firing your, uh, firing your guns, obviously, for friendly fire. 
especially the second and third waves. So the Japanese really used the bayonet a lot very effectively at night. So the observers came back and said, look, and you know, when that information flowed back to the US Army and the leadership, uh, they changed their position very radically from a de-emphasis to the bayonet to reversing their position very quickly. It was kind of surprising how sometimes, how, you know, again, on a small scale, it didn't change things radically. On a big scale for the Army, that experience was that the Navy was dead set on having Subic Bay be the main naval base in the Pacific. And they had been uh, investing this heavily. We've been building some stuff in, in before the Russo-Japanese War, during the Russo-Japanese War. What happens at Port Arthur, though, is the Japanese Army captured Port Arthur from the land side. The Army came away from that experience, especially because the topography of Port Arthur and Olengapo, Subic Bay, is very similar. The Army, who had been entirely deferential to the Navy on this point, suddenly reversed itself. Um, the, the people in the Philippines always wanted Manila to be defense, but, but the Secretary of, defense, uh, Secretary of War and the uh, Chief of Staff and others had said, no, we're going to just give the Navy what they want. They changed their opinion about that after looking through the Japanese War, and ultimately that was decisive. The Navy had no answer. If the Army said we can't defend the land side, the Navy huffed and puffed and, and complained. But ultimately, it, within a few years, the, we shifted our focus to Pearl Harbor. And so that's a case, again, it was a surprising example where things proved very effectively because it changed the way of thinking about whether how we were going to fight or what was relevant or who, whose equities were at stake. I think the, the first point I really want to highlight, because I think it's extremely important when you talked about learning what others are learning, especially adversaries, and you think about what the Russians learned in terms of armor from the Yom Kippur War, and I think... You know, that's something that we have to consider as we think about the future looking forward. You know, one of the, one of the things that even even really spawned this iteration of Mad Scientist that is that has really caused the stand up of Army Futures Command is this idea that we saw in the 2015 um, time frame around the Crimean War and Eastern Ukraine and the modernization of China is that we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of these things taking place in kind of these modern conflicts, and it's causing us as the Army to have this inflection point. But at the same time, those forces are learning as well, like you, like you talked about in terms of uh, in the Yom Kippur War. So what are, what are they learning now? What are they thinking about um, even mistakes made in those conflicts, whether it be Ukraine or Syria uh, and beyond? So I think that I just wanted to highlight that's a really important point. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can I just elaborate another example? And I think one of the challenges is that urgency, when the wars, the foreign wars reveals deficiencies, there's sometimes an urgency to respond. And so that was the case in the 70s with the Act of Defense Doctrine. Another example is in, in the Spanish Civil War, we did not have an anti-tank weapon in the late 30s in the entire U.S. Army. And the anti-tank weapons proved the decisive weapon the op opening year of the Spanish Civil War, uh, especially the German 37 millimeter gun. We ultimately embraced that. We essentially copy it, steal it, uh, you know, and use that. But that gun by the end of the Spanish Civil War even had become obsolete. Because others learn from that experience and they, they both made tanks much bigger and stronger and have bigger guns. And so the necessity was to, to change, but we didn't, we didn't change. And so it's the urgency which kind of drove us to neglect that, um, which is understandable, but at the same time, not going to get it done. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a worthwhile point to highlight. You, you spoke earlier about uh, Hap Arnold and how he sort of willingly ignored some lessons learned. Um, can you expand a little more on what prevented the U.S. from learning lessons from certain conflicts? Uh, and you were just mentioning it there just, just previously. Is it a cultural thing? Is it technology shortfalls? Why do we sometimes fail to learn from these things? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm uh, going to be part of the, the choir here, and the culture is a big part of, of what drives neglect. I mean, there's the services or components have sense of how they want to do things, and they're very much zeroed in on that. And so that that is a big part of, of what drives it. I would also argue that bureaucratic politics are a big part of it. Uh, again, I harp on Hap Arnold and, and criticize him, and, and most tech aviation historians do as well. Again, I mean, he, he deserves an appropriate legacy for all, and air power would be the key thing in World War II, and he, lots of uh, praise comes in certain regards. But in this regard, uh, he was eventful. But I will say that they were obsessed about getting the B-17 and having this strategic bombing approach, and it's appropriate to criticize them, but I also would say the bureaucratic politics, uh, General Imbic, who was the deputy chief of staff of the Army uh, up till uh, September of 38, he led a group that was just as committed to destroying the B-17 or killing the B-17. And so there's the polarized environment that, that Embic and the weapon that he seized on to destroy the B-17 was the Spanish Civil War. And so in fact, since the Spanish Civil War becomes a football between the two sides, uh, the Air Corps trying to dispatch it as irrelevant, uh, the conventional army trying hard to use it to say, look, we don't have any combat experience with air power really since World War I, significant experience in Ethiopia aside. And so we're going to, this shows us that the strategic bombing doesn't work, the bombers are useless, let's get rid of the B-17. And for a while, it looked like the, that those guys were going to win. Ultimately, they didn't, the Air Corps prevailed um, because of the White House changed its, its tune on that. Um, but that's, that's a bureaucratic politics example that really plays out, and you see that frequently. The culture of what's important to the service, what's relevant. And this is a hard problem. I mean, obviously, I don't want to argue that we should do irrelevant things or you should pay attention to irrelevant things. Learning efforts are so focused on what we deem relevant to this moment without knowing what the fit's going to be relevant in the future. Mine warfare is an excellent example. Culturally, the Navy never cared about mine warfare. And the Crimean War, mine and countermine efforts were really innovative. It was the first time mines made a big deal, made a big impact. The Navy couldn't have cared less. And then the mines become very important in the Civil War as, as, as one of the few ways that the Confederacy can really challenge the U.S. Navy. Circle back 40 years later, we get to the Russo-Japanese War. Mines are incredibly destructive. They're really the best weapon against warships in this in the Russo-Japanese War is mines. I mean, it's the only thing that really hurts the Japanese. The Navy comes out and says a one-leg statement. The Secretary of Navy says something like, mines are really important. And that's great. And then they do nothing with that. We get to World War I, they basically have any functioning mines at all. And we ultimately build this giant mine barrier between Scotland and Norway. But it took forever because we didn't have any capability, really. And we had no countermine ships. And so that's an example. Uh, in terms of technology, I didn't find technology being particularly limiting as a factor. It's often used as a reason why we shouldn't do stuff. The biggest lesson from the Spanish Civil War for air power was that we needed long-range escorts for bombers. Everybody used long-range escorts on both sides. One of the ex reasons why the Air Corps dismissed that lesson was that they argued simply that uh, it was impossible to design a long-range escort that could compete with, with short-range interceptors. And so the, the technological reason was a reason enough to drop it. One, you could use things like drop tanks, which, you know, these refused to think that was a worthwhile enterprise, and you could accomplish the same effect, and ultimately that becomes obviously something hugely important in World War II. But secondly, when World War II itself showed the desperate need for long-range escorts, we rapidly invest in the technology and generate what becomes, the, of course, the great P-51. Uh, we could have easily done that in the 30s, but the technology just served as an excuse. And in the Yom Kippur War, obviously, we, we came out with a lot of problems we identified from the war, problems in terms of fire support, problems in terms of SAMs. We formed a bunch of working groups. It's clear the technology to solve those problems is going to take a long time and invest. Some pans out, some doesn't. But the service, uh, the Army in particular, did lots of organizational and training changes in the interim, which were incredibly valuable, organizing the FIST for the fire support, 
organizing the uh, this uh, combat electronic warfare intelligence battalions as a way to try to bring electronic warfare connected more between the, the intel people and the uh, combat fighters. Um, and so there's lots of things you can do. Technology isn't really a good excuse not to do stuff, uh, although it's used that way. I, I think you bring up a couple of really cogent points in that, you know, so first thing is when you talk about these things, um, uh, what of what's relevant and what's irrelevant, and I think you know we use the example a lot of times of uh, this Harvard Business Review article uh, where one of the big problems in the late uh, 19th century was uh, as the U.S. was urbanizing, they had this huge horse manure problem, and it was just all over uh, in these urban areas um, as they had to continue to bring more and more horses in, and then uh, you know these first city planners came together could not come up with a solution um and then within the next decade it really didn't matter because you had cars starting to take over the roadways and so you know we're, we're thinking of what's relevant right now are we you know we we become dismissive of some of these lessons and use that as an excuse to kind of wipe it away that's that's what we try to use those historical analogies for as well but it really helps us to start framing questions the right way and I think, you know, it's it's a great segue, actually. So one of the seven most salient pitfalls that you identified with the case studies is pre-existing preferences exerting harmful influence. And so as the U.S. Army kind of recalibrates from 20 years of operational experience fighting counterinsurgencies um, and counterterrorism to now focus on multi-domain operations against these peer adversaries, and we're looking at it via large-scale combat operations, what are the pre-existing preferences that are that are kind of exerting harmful influence? Because I think there's some worry out there that uh, you know the the saying is that you go to war with the army you have, and uh, there's some concern that maybe we go to war with the uh, army we've built for conflict uh, that we want that we want to fight large-scale combat operations. So, what are those pre-existing preferences right now that you think maybe are kind of exerting harmful influence? Yeah, I mean, again, this is everywhere. I'm, I'm delving into stuff. I can speak less authoritatively, but I, I do follow this uh, stuff very closely, and uh, I have my opinions, of course. It's not the Russo Japanese War where I have a distinct advantage over uh, everybody else, having spent thousands of hours studying it. But, you know, I think multi domain operations and, and the, the LISCO and stuff that we fo- we're focusing on right now, we have a lot of theoretical concepts how this is going to work. We don't have. You know, fortunately, we've never fought a war like this. And so we have notions of what is going to be effective. And people are investing in those notions. I mean, they've worked hard to create them. I know that everybody down, you know, where y'all are and throughout the services are constantly trying to understand and appreciate this and anticipate what's going on. Um, and so we're investing in those things. And I worry that uh, we draw from our experiences. We're just looking for things to support that whether it be our own exercises, our own experiences, looking at foreign wars um, that are out there for things that indulge them. Uh, there was a quote by a, a general, a British commander of the Force Development and Training Command about 10 years ago, uh, talking about what we need to do is hunt lessons rather than gather lessons. And I, I, I'm incredibly skeptical of that, that approach, which I can understand it fits and it's, it's serviceable for what people are trying to do. And in his context, he was talking more about their own experiences, so it's a little bit more understandable, but I still think it's dangerous that, that you really need to do both. You know, if you're, if you're hunting, testing is obviously hugely important when you're trying to learn from foreign experiences or learn from our own exercises, particular things we're interested in. But if we define the parameters in a way we're just looking at stuff that facilitates 
considering what we want to do, we're going to miss out on how things occur. And that's why I'm a big advocate for gathering it. I mean, I, I'm an academic, so I can be criticized for being, you know, naive or, or living on my little castle here. Um, and, and so when I urge you to understand or try to get as good a history as possible from these experiences, an accurate history as possible, and to not wall off information because it's not deemed relevant or not deemed useful for what we're trying to argue for. And, you know, we benefited from certain experiences. They also had some blinders. They were fortunate that the, the circumstances they were trying to fight, the Russians in, in Central Europe, was the challenge that they needed to face, and they really didn't need to deal with other problems. But I think that it's very dangerous to, and I worry that, you know, all we're doing is going to try to justify the concepts, theoretical concepts that we've, we've defined. And we don't really, you know, foreign wars aren't going to look like MDOs with, against LISCOs. I mean, that's not what we're going to see. You know, I know y'all had a guest on six months ago who talked about the second uh, Nagar-Karabakh war, which, you know, again, a little war and a very short war, but, but you know, I mean, as you pointed out, there's some revealing interesting stuff there that, that you could think about. Um, how do you think about how you might, those might connect to telling you stuff about, you know, what we're trying to do today is very challenging and takes some creativity. It also takes a lot of openness. And that part is the thing that's most troubling because, again, I understand people are invested in what they, you know, and they think that this is the way to go and change those examples. I talked about things like changing whether or not Sudic Bay should be a base or the Bayonet or other examples. When there's concrete evidence that something's wrong, we tend to react very appropriately. But that's not the kind of evidence you're going to get like a major you know, operational concepts for, you know, again, MDOs against LISCOs. I mean, we're not going to find something that repudiates the approach we're taking entirely. So it's a question, how do you refine it? It goes back to my point about the, the Air Corps in the 30s. They wanted to do strategic bombing. That was great. Spanish Civil War could have helped them be much better about strategic bombing by telling them that you need things like long-range escorts. You know, bombers by themselves are not going to get it done. You, you know, and, and that would have been incredibly helpful. But they disregarded that of the overall scheme. We're going to protect our concept and protect our approach. And so that's really what worries me the most. How are you going to integrate information that allows you to refine your concepts in a productive way without undermining, you know, what they want to do? When you were doing your research, how important did you find it to have direct observation, you know, i.e., uh, U.S. service members in theater directly observing combat. Was that a critical component? In the earlier wars, it was. I mean, we sent uh, 23 people to the Russo-Japanese War, the Army and Navy. Uh, that was the, the biggest number we had. But that was a, you know, a convention, a norm, really, of the late of the 19th century and early 20th century that was, you know, we could do that. You're never going to have that back again. I mean, every now and then, someone at one of the war colleges would write a paper saying, it would be great if we brought back direct observers and I never really understand how we're going to do it practically in terms of parachuting them into the Gordon Karbach and letting them you know, sit in a cafe and watch the war go by, because uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, that went away by World War I largely, but it wasn't essential. Again, I had examples where those were the core during the Spanish Civil War. It was primarily an attache-driven effort, especially because a lot of the interesting things about the Spanish Civil War were done by foreign militaries fighting in Spain. And so that information was almost more accessible in other countries outside. Uh, when we get to the Yom Kippur War, it's largely an example of examining a war after it happens. It's 18 days or 19, depending on how you want to count. And it was so fast and so rapid, we, there was no way to really learn in there. What's more important, really, from my experience was the cooperation of the combatants. Are they willing to work with you, provide you access to information? And one of the Japanese generals in the rest of the Japanese war complained when being hectored about, you know, trying to get information from him, saying, you know, we're dying for this information. Why should we give it to you? And a lot of combatants feel that way. Um, in the Yom Kippur War, obviously the United States benefited phenomenally from the cooperation with Israel. I mean, it was 
you know, it couldn't have been a better circumstance from trying to learn from a war when you've got a country that, or military, at least the IDF, which was very, uh, wanted to cooperate with the Americans. And, and it was actually a foundation for both the Army and Navy, or Army, excuse me, Army and Air Force, to develop lots of long-lasting friendships, which benefited both services immensely in the coming years. You know, it's not simply stuff like, well, the Israelis gave us Soviet equipment and they've been using combat for it to bring back to, to various army labs and to let, take it apart and play with it. It was things like having them junior and mid-level officers fill out questionnaires, whether they were tank officers or aviators, about what happened in combat. Those were enormously useful. I mean, to, again, to harp on the difference between the Army and aviators, a lot of the aviators didn't bother to fill them out, but most of the Army guys, the tank officers did. And those informa- that was incredible information. So that's very useful. Ultimately, I think it's entirely context-dependent. How you're going to learn from in, in individual war is going to be incredibly dependent on the variables. What's the attitude of the, you know, what's the length of time? What's the political relationship between the U.S. and those countries? What's the uh, availability of what's going on? Uh, you know, I didn't, this is one of the things I contemplated at the end. Should I recommend a way to learn from foreign wars? And I think that's, uh, that would be a, a fool's errand because it's going to be so uh, context dependent. And I didn't want to encourage certain things that would inevitably get us down in trouble. Um, I will say, though, if, if you're fighting with a close ally, uh, it's obviously a fantastic thing. Um, and you can learn a lot from that. But then at the same time, again, there's, there's political equities in there that might corrupt your lesson. So you just have to be a case. I mean, Israelis were very brutal about, uh, you know, honest about what they were doing and the mistakes they'd made, especially after the Yom Kippur War. It was very surprising for the Israelis. And they were very chagrined about, especially their overarching armor focus. Uh, and so they, they went away from that and they were very open to discussion. Um, although, again, being Israelis, it was all very ad hoc. They were very amazed about the U.S. Army Credit Came in with this, this monstrous, uh, the Brady Commission came in with, with huge numbers and, and a monstrous enterprise that, that people like General Don were, were strict and how different the Americans were from the Israelis. You know, segueing from that now, the Army is actually pursuing six modernization priorities. So we're looking at long-range precision fires, the next-generation combat vehicles, uh, future vertical lift, our network, air and missile defense, and then soldier lethality. So we're going to obviously uh, fix everything. But uh, as, as you talked about, um, Colonel Antal uh, came on, identified kind of 10 lessons learned from the second uh, Nagorno-Karabakh War uh, last year, and, and some of which aren't addressed in those six modernization priorities like mask or die. Um, some of these ideas of deception um, and protection and things like that. So what key lessons do you think the Army really needs to be addressing when we look at you know racing to modernize this force beyond those six modernization priorities? What is the Army missing right now? Yeah, uh, you know, when, when I hear that list, the thing that strikes me is we take out network. The other five are pretty much uh, carbon copies of, of the primary lessons of modern nation goals in the 1970s after the Yom Kippur War. Um, and so it's very striking that, you know, those are the core elements of the, goes back to your earlier point that, you know, are we just doing what we, we've traditionally done and, and we're having a hard time breaking out of it. The one other thing from that period, which I think is still highly relevant, and, and I know it's in there somewhere among those six, is electronic warfare and how it fits in. And, but it strikes me that, that that remains a, a real uh, key element. And so you hate to, I don't want to see that short changed beyond ultimately for me, network is the one, you know, I know that those six and as you said, we're going to fix everything. Uh, the, the hard part of the equation for me is the networking, which seems to link all them together. And, and I think this is where we don't have a good feel for how this is going to work. And, and we get bogged down in lots of technological solutions, but it's really more the, the how all these pieces are going to fit together. The, I mean, Colonel talked about the, the, you know, how do you deal with the, the unmanned versus man combination, which, 
to me seems the hardest part to, to figure out. And, and I don't, you know, I think this is where you really want to look at everybody's experiences, you know, organizationally in training and doctrine, these concepts as opposed to the actual equipment. This is where other experiences, people's experiences can really facilitate learning. Uh, they're not going to do it the way you do it. They're not the way we do it in, in the army and in the, in the DOD at large. Um, they don't have the kind of resources. They have different cultures, but they're very creative on the battlefield coming with workable solutions. And so I, I just, you know, I think in terms of hubris, sometimes we dismiss them. And even people who were great innovators, great learners, like General Abrams, when it came to whether or not the, the, the helicopter was too vulnerable to operate on the battlefield with modern SAMs in, in the early second Yom Kippur War, some of the Israelis came back and said, you can't do it with attack helicopters. General Abrams, you know, went on Capitol Hill and people, he was attacked by members of Congress saying, well, look, the Israelis say you can't do it. He said, well, we're, we're the U.S. Army. We know more about helicopters than anybody in the world, and it can be done. The Apache was sacrosanct and was going to survive. And, and it's proved an enormously useful platform for, for 50 years, but, but it never had to fight in the kind of the level of intensity that we would find in that battle war in Central Europe if you'd fought World War III in a conventional form. But what I really kind of think beyond kind of the, the, the equipment and, and modernization efforts is really how do we organize and facilitate training? You know, those things I think get lost sometimes in, in the army, apparently desperate to get new equipment. I mean, essentially we're still using legacy systems from that 70s revitalization. Um, you know, the, the younger war had big impact on how the Bradley was designed um, as opposed, and, and some of the other uh, ones, the big five, basically all of them except for the uh, utility helicopter. But, uh, you know, it, it's a case of, do we need to make sure that we don't neglect those areas? And organizational change is, is a painful uh, process for, for the services, and they don't like to do it unless they're forced to do it. Um, but I, that would be the area that, that gives me, are we in the proper organizational scheme for doing what we want to do? And how do we learn that? How do we get there? Because um, I think if we just get, even if we get those six modernization things, which would be a miracle, I granted, from, the, uh, from a fiscal uh, perspective, uh, I worry that we won't be getting the most out of them. And so that really drives me to, to in that regard. I, I think that's a great point. And I think you had pointed out in the book in the Yom Kippur War, one of the things that was extremely decisive for the Israelis was not just their material um, and what they were able to do with that, um, but rather their leadership training, um, their their ability with their uh, junior mid-level or mid-grade officers able to kind of be decisive and, and to operate independently um, and and so that command and control actually worked quite well because of the levels of training and, and capabilities they had. So I think that's a really important lesson for us to think about. Um, and it sounds a little cliche, and sometimes we say it though, but people still matter. And so we have to think about um, how do we how do we insert those things like training and mission command and, and everything else. So this this has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, so we're going to transition though to our rapid fire questions, and this really kind of helps tell our audience a little bit more about our guests. Um, so the first question is, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? I, I would have, before COVID, probably answered biological warfare just because I, I did work for DOD and supported with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency about 20 years ago on biological weapons stuff, and that scared the heck out of me. Um, and you know, in this era, though, now with COVID, that's apparent to everyone. So I will transition to what my bread and butter is, decision-making. I think it's becoming increasingly hard to differentiate fact from fiction with deep fakes and other things. And I really worry about how we're going to make good decisions, especially in the national security space where uh, it, it, we're very much under time pressure and, and uh, intense pressure to do the right thing. 
uh, in terms of crises or during wartime decision making. And so I, I, I don't have a good feel on this. It's one of the things I think about a lot. How can we be better at decision making when we, the foundation for good decision making is accurate information? And are we going to be able to generate and identify that accurate information in the future is, is a, a very worrisome trend. Well, when you figure out the answer to that, will you let us know? Absolutely. <laughs> Another hundred years, I'll, I'm sure I'll have something. <laughs> and I know uh, your, fir- your first fear, I think, was pretty well founded. Unfortunately, we found out. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a great point. We talk about communication, decision making as two critical areas on here, um, even though we kind of get wrapped around the axle a lot of times about technology. Uh, what is something about you most people might not know that you're willing to share in the air? You know, most people who know me uh, know I'm a workaholic and they can, they're conceptualizing me as I work all the time. That's fairly accurate. But the way I start my workday every day is doing the crossword puzzle. It's almost become a, 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 an element of work for me. Uh, it's, it's, it's the first work task I have every day to take it down. And um, I never start anything else until I finish it. And actually, at this point, after 30 years of doing this kind of habit, I can pretty much gauge how productive I'm going to be in terms of how well I do with the crossword puzzle. If I kind of breeze through it, uh, you know, maybe it's a Monday on the New York Times, it's, it's, a, it's a lark. But, but, you know, in general, if I breeze through it and are very effective, it's going to be relatively productive. If I struggle with the crossword puzzle, it's probably going to be a long day of, of uh, ineffectiveness because I, I'm not thinking clearly or I haven't got enough sleep. That is something that I believe very fundamentally, you know, kind of cross train for the mind as well as the body. You know, it's like, and, and, and that's just something that gets my day started. Okay. So we're going to use crosswords as our barometer for how the day's productivity goes. I like it. Uh, and finally, uh, Matt and I's favorite question usually what is your favorite movie? Uh, yeah, I love movies. So there's a lot of potential candidates. But for me, I guess the standard is, is when it comes on television, even though I've seen it a hundred times, do I watch it again? And by that score, uh, the, the, there's two obvious candidates. One is Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and the other is The Big Lebowski. Uh, I'll go with the former because uh, even though, if I was probably just trained on the desert island, I'd probably pick The Big Lebowski, but I'm going to go with the Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. Um, I spend a lot of time by myself working, obviously, you know, doing the shop research, or at least with people who've been dead a long time. And so I, I, that's, that's such a great buddy picture. And it reminds me how valuable it is to get out and spend time with friends. And, and I'll say this about the book in, in closing is that the, the book, you know, benefited enormously from longstanding years, long conversations with good friends. Uh, you know, even though I, I, I spend a lot of time in the weeds that, you know, trying to understand stuff, bouncing ideals off people is incredibly invaluable. And so I know that's something which are doing on, on a broad space here is basically having a conversation and that's, incredibly valuable. And, you know, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid just reminds me of that value. And so that's one of the reasons why besides it just being a great movie. Well, those are, those are two great picks. Uh, and rewatchability, I think, is very underrated when you're talking about your favorite movies. Um, you know, if you can go back to something time and time again and get comfort from it, I mean, that has got to shoot to the top of your list. Um, Brent, before we let you go, where can people follow you? Where can people see your work? Are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of an old Luddite, um, but you can certainly uh, email me if you want at uh, sterlingbgeorgetownedu if you, uh, anybody wanted to uh, continue the conversation with me or uh, basically if you want to, I guess, really contact you and you can relay any, any issues to me. Um, that's where uh, the best way to get a hold of me is. Uh, I, I just like to one thing, close out with one observation or a point about the book. You know, there's this emphasis by the military to learn from the experience immediately. And that's appropriate and valuable. But I also think capturing these experiences and what we learn in a way that's available and, and accessible later on down the road as certain changes is incredibly valuable. So I just put the plug in for doing that. 
Uh, in the Yom Kippur War, uh, Tradoc spent an enormous time kind of invested in how does the Yom Kippur War tell us about how to fight in Central Europe in, in the mid 70s? It led to the Act of Defense Doctrine. Five years later, General Starr was a corps commander in Europe, and he realized that I had a different problem. The real problem was the, the follow on echelons with the Soviet army advancing. And that was a different problem than they'd addressed initially looking at the Yom Kippur War. He actually went back to Israel, back to all of his new buddies, and went back to the Golan Heights and, and looked at an entirely different aspect of the battle, which was essentially the, a flank, the flanking, divisional flanking maneuver. And as a friend of mine who's a real expert on the Yom Kippur War says, it took a lot of creativity of General Starr to envision that as a multi echelon Soviet attack. That's what the, not what the Syrians did, um, but you know, best it was a second, two echelons. But but anyway, it's it was the ability to go back. And, you know, he was had the good fortune to go back actually physically and talk to the Israelis. That's not going to be available to everybody. So it's a real question: Do you capture these what we learn, capture the experiences, so that later people, when in different circumstances, can can appeal to that information and consider it in terms of what to do? And so I, I think that's. A one way to maximize your value from such undertakings. I think that's very well put, capturing knowledge and making it accessible. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast and with Mad Scientist overall. So we really want to thank you, Brent, for coming on and allowing us to capture your knowledge and making it accessible to our network and to the listeners here. Uh, so thanks for coming on today, Brent. We really appreciate it. We learned a lot, and hopefully we're going to continue to learn from you. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. It was, it was a very pleasurable experience. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Brent Sterling. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.